Hey everybody, uh, Lee Berkstein and Cooper Knowlton back with another episode of Closed. Today we are very fortunate to have with us Robert Levine. Robert is the founder and CEO of RAL Properties. He's been developing luxury residential resort and commercial properties since 1982. Uh, projects are located all across the country, including right here in New York. Um, we're going to talk about one of those projects in a few minutes. But Robert, thanks for taking a few minutes to be with us today. That's my pleasure. Um, so I think, Cooper, we wanted to first kind of dig into Brooklyn, since Cooper and I are both Brooklyn guys at heart, even though we no, both no longer live there. Um, well, that's your mistake. <laughs> you have to talk. To my, you have to talk to my wife about it, who dragged me to the suburbs during COVID. Um, Where Roslyn? No, not Roslyn, uh, Westchester. Oh, you went the other way. Okay. <laughs> I started. I started uh, in Long Island, and I did not want to end there. So, um, <laughs> well, that, the, that's an, we could do. That's another episode. We can get into that another time. We can. You know, we can, I can uh, dissect Lee's all of Lee's former apartments, former apartments and housing. An armchair psychology episode about me leaving Brooklyn would be fascinating podcasting. So we'll, we'll put that on the table for next time. I grew up in Brooklyn also. So, but it was, a, it was a different Brooklyn. <laughs> it was... All anyway. right. So, so I, I think the first, the, the place we wanted to start was um, <clears throat> with uh, one Brooklyn bridge park, which I mentioned I've, I've been to my aunt used to live there and I've spent, spent a couple uh, holidays <clears throat> in that building, um, beautiful building and, and just uh, wanted to sort of get the history on how that project uh, came about, what the process was of, 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 you know, starting that development. So that was probably one of the most interesting projects that anybody could conceive of. Um, this goes back to 2002, 2003, uh, in that area when the, uh, well, first of all, you know, I, I would drive on the BQE and we, we had done a number of major conversions of buildings in lower Manhattan, um, which we could talk about later. But I, I like to say that when I drove past 360 Furman, which is now one Brooklyn Bridge Park, the building was screaming out to me to be converted to residential. Um, you know, we, we could talk about later, but RAL was conceived out of being uh, an architectural firm first. I'm a graduate architect. Um, we, we, you know, we were a large architectural firm before we focused on our own development. And um, so, so the building was, was such that it was really very attractive to us. Um, and I could see it being converted. Um, its configuration was not clear from the road at that time because it wasn't the the clear the clear h that it it ended up being in terms of shape with the four wings on it because those ends were stair towers that closed off the ends and those ends were demolished but that let's let's go back to how this all came about and so the jehovah witnesses put it on the market and everybody was interested in it. Probably every major developer in New York City was interested in the building. Um, we approach all of our projects um, really from a design standpoint first and look at what we can achieve. That site was, was 
you know, bound by the peers uh, and Pier 6 and um, Girolamin Street or the map Girolamin Street because that really wasn't a street. <clears throat> and the property lines were right up to the building, but they had easements around the building for access. At the same time, Brooklyn Bridge Park was being conceived and it ended really at Girolamin Street. And um, we, we are advocates of working very closely with the municipality and, and the various agencies wherever we do projects. And, you know, we like to say that, you know, we're lovers, not fighters, and uh, that we go in with a very, uh, you know, transparent plan. And we got together with the city, we got together with the state, because it was really at that time more, it was the state and ESDC um, that was really driving the boat. And this was even prior to uh, the city and the state committing funds for the park. But there was, there was a plan for the park, uh, a general project plan, which did not include 360 Furman or the property around it or access to Pier 6. And uh, we went in and said that we couldn't see developing that building without it being part of the park and that we could, we could make the park that much better and allow the park to then have access to Atlantic Avenue and Pier 6. And what was generated out of this was the initial program to create Brooklyn Bridge Park as a self-sustaining park. So what that meant was, and this is going to sound crazy, but what we actually proposed at that point was we, we purchased, and I'll get back to the selection process, but we ended up purchasing 360 Furman from the witnesses for an extraordinary amount of money. It was over $200 million. And ultimately what we did, we contributed that building to the to the park to the state or to to the park and what was granted to us in exchange for that was that the we got a zoning override and we did not have to do a ULERP or everything and we fell under the jurisdiction of the state with the exception of having to comply with everything in the building department so we pretty much um, avoided a, a one year additional process of the ULERP, because there's no question that it would have been granted. We also acknowledged at that point that we were not going to exceed the existing height of the building. We did, we, the building had uh, parapets on it that were like two stories, which we cut off, and we were able to actually add two stories to the building, which you can't tell because it's the same height as it was before as well as cutting off and clearing those courtyards that were uh, blocking the, those, those inner portions of the, the building, which created the way it worked and all. You know, there, there are so many design details and components that go into this, um, but it was, it was quite an undertaking. But part of the process that was even more uh, of, of, a, of a challenge was the actual selection process to be the successful bidder. And we, uh, as I said, we, we, there was every, every major developer in the city was involved. It was narrowed down to three 
um, we spent weeks together with the uh, the senior groups of the uh, the Jehovah Witnesses. They spent time in our offices. They visited various projects of ours throughout the country and spoke to people we dealt with. And that was because to this day, people still perceive that building as the Jehovah Witnesses building, or it was part of their, their kingdom, or the Bethel, as they called it. So we, we convinced them also that they had to select somebody that was going to deliver a product that they would be proud of and that they could have their name on as well. And after visiting everybody and doing everything, they selected us. Um, then the challenge became, you know, it started, it really first started then. We, we closed on the property. They stayed in it for one year. Um, that was part of the understanding. While we were preparing plans and uh, getting approvals, um, when they finally did move out, you know, the building was the building. We were doing such extensive demolition, it didn't really matter. But they did take everything down to the doorknobs and the uh, everything that was in there because they reuse it in other buildings. We did force them to bring back some of the doorknobs on the fire doors because we did <laughs> want to maintain life safety. Um, it was it was always an experience, but uh, we then started the process of really standing side by side with the park on everything that transpired. Um, and, you know, we've always had a great relationship. They didn't necessarily maintain the schedules we anticipated. Um, you know, there, there was, there was, there were, we, we were under the impression and the, the schedule that <clears throat> at least the site around our building would be completed uh, pretty much when we started to occupy the building, uh, but it wasn't. So it was it was what it was. Uh, the retail has always been a challenge there, um, the, you know, and the way we created everything. But, you know, other than that, it's, you know, it's, it's an exceptional building. It, you know, we were able to get uh, 435 units, I believe as I recall, out of it. And, you know, it was spectacular. I mean, the views uh, are unbelievable. Um, and it was, it really was the catalyst and the key to the development of Brooklyn Bridge Park. And the way it was structured, so then be, beyond that was, we did, we did contribute it, as I mentioned, that we created a ground lease structure where the building uh, pays a, uh, a, a ground lease. It's part of the common charges to the owners. And that is, uh, is enables the park to be self-sustaining. And then it was carried through on the Pier House property in, in that way. Um, the other uh, one, John, and then on Quay Tower and uh, the Landing, which are two other buildings that we developed as well. So um, it was, you know, it, it was quite a, uh, a journey. It was one of the, listen, we've, I've done, you know, I can't count the number of projects I've done in my career and all over. And it, it stands out as one of the, uh, the outstanding projects we've done. Probably one of the, probably the largest 
it probably is the largest residential conversion done in New York, despite what some people might say. But from a footprint, it was, you know, it's well over a million square feet. And uh, it's it's quite the building. You know, we we uh, we did some very interesting things. I don't know if, if you've ever been in the parking levels, the way we have the the ramps constructed and where there were some double height ceilings, we actually put a, a, a floor in, continued a mezzanine, which is part of the parking. So that enabled us to create a 500 plus car attended parking garage in it. And then also there's 152 um, condominium parking spaces where a separate entrance allows people to drive in and park their cars and access the, uh, the, the apartments. So it kind of covered all bases. And, yeah, it, uh, it was it, it was fun. Did you when you were when you were conceiving of the idea? Did you um, did was there ever any doubts when you were talking to financers and and just people about the project? I mean the the I mean could you have I, it would have been hard to have predicted the evolution of that neighborhood and the park becoming such a I mean the park is is you go down there any Saturday or Sunday and it's just exploding with people but. That, it didn't always exist like that. I mean, that neighborhood was kind no. of a sleepy, quiet um, on the yeah. other side of the BQE. I'm, 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 I'm amazed that sort of the how it's all t come together and just sort of wonder what the reaction was when you initially proposed this this development. Well, we were truly the catalyst, but it was um, in terms of dealing with financial institutions on it and everything. It was based upon our prior performance and the relationships I've had. Um, those relationships are not, it, it's not very much like that any longer. I mean, it, it's, it's a different world now. Um, and that's another whole chapter, but it is, uh, you know, we had, we had relationships back then. We have always done, uh, institutional financing on our projects in a way we still maintain that model. We have not, you know, gone the route of foreign money or, different things. We put our equity in side by side with a, with an institutional partner um, and we deliver. We have never yet not delivered a project, you know, on budget and on time. And we, we do it um, very methodically and, and consistently. Um, we have a lot of discipline in the organization and there's a lot of knowledge here as well. Most of the key people back then as well as now were architects or engineers or you know um you know and we we uh we pepper that with the uh financial guys you know it's uh, and and the lawyers but uh you know there was a there was a, a very different time because people looked at what you had accomplished too and you know 360 was we were coming off at that time um 270 Broadway, I think, which was a conversion of the former state office building to residential. Um, 90 Franklin, which was a conversion of uh, the 18-story former uh, Health and Human Resources, another building that was, you know, and these were all, um, they were all successful. And even through the hard times, I mean, we came to market with one Brooklyn, again, you know, in a slump in the market. Um, but we we have always been, you know, consistent and committed to our properties. And I've been through now uh, 
you know, every cycle, including the one we're in now, which, you know, we're in the midst of a major project and it's, you know, listen, we just completed an office building on 14th Street, which is, it's, it's extraordinary. It's 96% leased despite what's, what everybody's talking about. And when it comes back to again, it comes back to quality and design and sponsorship and who you, who's there. You know, um, but I don't want to go off astray on all these other things. So the the um, so one Brooklyn was, you know, uh, we had our you know, we had our time. It took us longer to to sell it than anticipated. Um, we did sell it out. As I mentioned, the commercial has always been a challenge um, and remains a challenge. It's it's kind of all leased now, but. We still have in that that building, and we just actually redid it all. And there's a an access through one of the retail stores brings you to an elevator that brings you up to like a seventeen thousand square foot extraordinary space with skylights and different stuff. And it's 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 great space. And we originally envisioned it as a gallery or museum space. And originally that was going to be conveyed to the city for a museum or, or something, um, or if or if didn't get taken, we actually had a trigger that after three years, if no one took it, we'd still give the park $3 million or something, which should have been reconsidered, but <laughs> it was something we agreed to and it was done. So it's still sitting uh, vacant. As I said, we just you know, refinished it completely, you know, polished the concrete floors, painted it, put lighting in. So it's even more attractive and hopefully somebody will wake up and lease it. But it's, um, you know, nothing is simple. And that's that's really the, the, the thing. But if, you know, our philosophy is if you're going to do it, do it right and stick with it. And, and that's what we've done repeatedly. I, I, I don't want to go too far off what we wanted to talk about, which is the future of, of residential development in New York City, but you mentioned the 14th Street property. Is that Zero Irving that you're referring to? Yes, it is. So I, I did want to ask you about that quickly because we've had a number of guests on here talking about office in New York. Um, it's obviously all over the news, uh, the, the struggling office environment. And you mentioned the success you're having there. What are, what are some of the reasons for it other than, are there other reasons other than quality? What are some of the lessons that office landlords so, can pull from Zero Irving? So we approach our projects and we have another big office project that we're working on right now in Wynwood, Miami, that replicates what Zero Irving is. And what we, when we approach it, remember, we're, we're different. And I mentioned this earlier because we approach things from a design standpoint first. And we look at things and how can we create something that is far different than our competition and will separate us in a difficult market. And in the case of Zero Irving, again, we're now going to start with a process that was um, an RFP from this from economic from edc from the city to do a ground lease and they wanted something that was creative and different and that would serve the community and also the uh 
set it apart. And when we went in with our proposal, we went in with a program for what we call now our office ecosystem. <laughs> and that ecosystem is a combination of various uses that complement one another as well as a link to the community and also um, providing the whole process through the building. So when I mention this, this is this deserves a lot of time. This is a whole thing. But so that building, so you understand, we went in starting at the ground floor. We went in with it and said, we're going to create and have a food hall. Uh, and that food hall is going to have a requirement for 25% of the vendors have to be new startups from the community. All right. So there's there's this already this this process and this growth thing happening. Then we had floors two through seven, and we proposed this from the onset. We brought in originally the group called Civic Hall, which during that process was acquired by FedCap. But we worked with them very closely, and we created together with them a building within a building. So Civic Hall has its own entrance, its own elevators, and everything. They're it's a totally independent building. But what it is, is it has the second floor is actually an event space that's going to be available to the community as well as this whole Civic Hall process and the building. Then <laughs> floors three through seven are everything from digital skills training which starts with a preferred uh, rent that they have on two floors two and three. And then it goes up to provide leasing of like the growth companies and different things that come out of, of this. And we provided five-year leases with, so that they could be attainable by smaller companies and different kinds of security requirements. And that grows into then the more permanent um, established companies, which then closes out that base of the building. And then we go to Zero Irving's entrance, where that lobby goes to another level of, of finish. And that, that accesses floors 8 through 21. Now, floors 8 through 21 also have some breakups about how the leases work, but it's all market rents. And we've exceeded all expectations on that and have every every tenant is a formidable tenant that most people would take, be happy with just one in their building. And we can honestly say that every floor is, is a, a notable top company in, in the world. And that was, again, now because of the fact that we then combined our hospitality experience of doing hotels everywhere that we do and took all of those components that we provide in a hotel with the exception of rooms and put it into the building. So we have a full gym, not just some bullshit gym, but like a full gym with showers, lockers and everything. We have 
Um, the rooftop uh, is there is no mechanical equipment or anything. Everything was is off the roof. The full roof is totally. Um, it's a landscaped environment with you know internet, sound, the, the whole thing. It's an extension of your office space, and everything is is meant to be um, to make it a lifestyle. And that's that's what's worked. And we go there and we see it working. People, you know, they go down to the food hall, they get stuff, they take it up to the roof, they take it to their office. And offices are no longer anything like, and, and even the way we, we designed the building, we limited the number of columns. We went to, you know, we do a lot of work outside of New York and we do a lot of post-tension design and concrete work. It's not common in New York. Um, we still did it. Um, and it enabled us to limit the number of columns on the floor as well. So they're, they're clear open spaces. They laid out very well. The bathrooms are, you know, the, uh, there's no more, you know, everything's the unisex bathroom or whatever we're calling it, gender neutral, whatever. I don't know. The, uh, I've been looking for the men's room since we built the building. I can't find it, but it, it's, it's like, um, you know, really, you know, we're, we're, we're an organization that, that works from lessons learned. Totally. And, you know, my son's in the business, my son-in-law's in the, you know, it's a, it's a family here with everybody. I mean, I've got people that have been here for 25 years or more, you know, and, and, uh, it sounds so, like tremendous, tremendous attention to detail too. In yeah, what you're that's describing. the game. It's, a, that's it's, really, really, it's really impressive to hear you describe the building and, a way that that few people do um just like every every little detail is 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 thought out which is really inspiring and that's, what we, that's really what we try to do and we truly we we don't joke about it we have a real passion for it you know and um and it fought we follow through with it in the management of the building and the operation you know we try to to make it very uh they're very the buildings are special as are the residential buildings i mean the the residential stuff overlays into the office, the office, into, you know, and since, so, you know, since COVID, you know, there's, there's a balance between the two. Now, you know, we were, we leased up, you know, we leased and we're building through COVID and we had, we were, you know, we only have, we only have one floor that's not leased in the building. And uh, that was intentional. You know, we held it back. So. That's the story there. There's oh, and the point there was oh, there's more to it. Um, what happened there then was we were the successful respondent to the building, and again, the the city then turned to us and said we were approved initially for the the RFP asked for an alternative if you wanted to opt to then take the building at your expense and your uh, your cost through a ULERP and transfer the FAR from the housing project behind the building that was on the same lot. And if you wanted to go to that, do that and pick up the expense once selected, uh, the city supported that. And we did that and we were able to get seven additional floors on the building as a result of it. So you can see how these things evolve. Yeah, I, I know Lee wants to 
to jump in and talk about the Mayor Adams' recent proposal about uh, increasing affordable housing in the city, and, and I'm anxious to hear your answer to, to that. But one, I have one last question just about kind of the development work that you've done in the past, which is just kind of, you, you mentioned earlier that um, it was a different time when you were developing uh, one Brooklyn Bridge, and just, just wondering like how the process of development, specifically in New York City, um, how has it changed over the three, four decades you've been, you've been in this space? What, what are the kind of differences today, um, that, that you didn't, you didn't see when you first started in this space? It's really the vision of the institutional investors and the, um, the, the people making decisions to do the projects and, and not having the, uh, you know, and I'm not being critical of this, but the, you know, there's much more reliance on analysts and, you know, uh, returns on investment that are on paper versus the vision and the, um, the knowledge of the developer. And, you know, back, uh, it's crazy, but, you know, in the, in, in those earlier days, um, you know, we went from one project to the next with a template pretty much of a, uh, you know, of a partnership agreement, uh, you know, with equity partners that was just like, you know, just call us. We want to do this stuff with you. You know, we, and there, you know, we, there was no, uh, I mean, we never benefited by some of the stories where people got 110%, you know, of, of costs or anything, everything was above board. We never got any more than, you know, 85 or 90% on, you know, equity partners, which is still traditional. Um, but, but there was a much, um, and it, maybe it was just the personalities were different and it was, and the knowledge was different. They, people really understood the, you know, people really understood development and building. You know, now, you know, you, they don't know about different foundations or what it is or, you know, why something close to the water costs more or, you know, why you have to do, you know, 110 foot piles when, you know, or what isn't, you know, isn't New York on rock, you know, or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's it's just a different time. I, I recognize it. Um, you know, listen. I'm I rec I'm a dinosaur in this industry now in terms of things. I'm not as old as Larry Silverstein, but I'm out here. You know, and it's um, it's very different. And I I see. Listen, I used to do you know a pro forma on a single eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper, and it was great. It actually worked. You know, I look at stuff now. I our guys, it's some forty pages of things. Lawyers, you know? lawyers wouldn't make as much money then. Right. Listen, I'm worried about you guys with AI, you know, <laughs> my best friends are all lawyers, <laughs> That's all. but they're, they're on the end, you guys, you know, <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's different in that respect. In terms of debt, it's very different as well, but on, on the debt side, there still are, you know, banks that look at relationships, you know, and, and that, that's still a little bit different than the equity guys. The equity guys are not they're, they're just all you know it's just it's a different world so you know you had mentioned uh that you relied on lessons learned in developing zero irving 
I guess I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, whether you think the city moving forward will will learn from various lessons. So obviously, it seems like, and you know, we're not we're not real estate developers. We have some clients who operate in that space, but it seems like the 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 city is at a bit of an inflection point with respect to the future of residential development. And um, I think Cooper mentioned earlier this week, Mayor Adams set forth like a series of, I don't know if I would call them ambitious proposals, maybe realistic proposals uh, that could pass the, the New York City Council when they reconvene to start pushing residential development. But, but what do you see I guess one is the challenges moving forward with respect to the future of development in the city. And two, what do you think is the path forward? So how, uh, how, how is development going to um, surge back? How are we going to see um, residential development move forward in the wake of the expiration of 421A and some of the affordable tax abatement expirations? Well, we we have tried to do affordable housing a number of times and there it has not always been successful um and it's really because the land is too expensive and construction costs are too high we first of all we build most of our projects basically all of our projects we have a choice we build everything union only because we have, again, goes back to the quality standard, not to say now that non-union contractors have come a long way and the work is clearly improved and there are good open shop and non-union contractors. But where we did our work and, and really a lot of our stuff was always condominiums and I, even our rentals were had condominium finishes. Because again, we, we didn't, we just were unhappy with not doing it that way. So as as the sponsor we always wanted to be sure that an electrician was an electrician all day and not loading the truck in the afternoon or doing something else on like a non-union guy whatever it was but it, it's been our thing in terms of what we did do and it was really it's the only one that's ever been done and the landing in brooklyn bridge park was actually a reverse 80 20. We actually did that building as 80% affordable and 20% market. And it was because we put it together as a program together with Quay Tower when, when, that, when those uh, sites became available. And we basically had Quay Tower subsidize the, some of the costs of the landing. And that enabled us to have the 80% um, affordable building along with the uh, uh, 421 is gone but we got the the like the the come the 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 benefits of a 421 under the pilot program that was there so between the combination of the 421 or the the whatever we want to call it the tax the abatement and the fact that we subsidized the cost of the construction we were able to pr to present and and offer a meaningful affordable building okay but the 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 reality is 
that under the whole of our, my experience under the whole affordable program is that the process to lease it up is onerous. And that really, as far as I'm concerned, as much as I want to do affordable housing, it has turned me I'm personally off to it. And we've been trying to work with a couple of people on it. Um, we work very closely with uh, Alicia Glenn and her group, you know, the M2 or whatever. And we've looked at a number of things and we haven't gotten them to pencil out. They don't make sense. And um, the solution uh, is, you know, I don't, I don't know offhand what the solution is because even if you get the land for nothing and you uh, have an abatement, it's still very difficult to operate the building and come out with anything or at least and so you know it you revert back to you know going to situations you know i think that there's there there is potential on some of the the public housing properties where there's infill development being done that some of that makes sense and there are those developers like L&M and a couple of others that, you know, manage to do affordable stuff and make it work. But, you know, looking at some of the proposals that have been made uh, by the mayor and all, um, I don't know, there's only a few people in, in New York that have done more conversions than we have. And not every office building is suitable to be converted to residential. Right. Um, some of the latest uh, ones that have been done, you know, like by, you know, have where they've cut the cores out and things of that nature. Um, you know, again, I, I'm not an advocate of building a, a rental building or an affordable building where you've got units that are, you know, facing on to basically, a, you know, a 60 by 60 core that is you, you is really yeah you have light you have air but not necessarily light um so again it falls back to our whole philosophy of trying to build properties that are really you know uh pleasant to live in so you know i've, I've been looking at some of the things that have come up um you know the the thing where you know eliminate parking so you know uh, he's yeah, I mean, this stuff has been around forever, really. And it's not it's not like it's it's new and groundbreaking. I, I think that um, the, the whole thing really becomes making available land to developers coming up with a solution where maybe there's a, a mix of market rate and affordable and some kind of uh, subsidy that gets you even at least when you're building the building to get to a point of trying to operate it and have an NOI that can support it with the interest rates where they are today, unless you're going to get financing that is, you know, reasonable. Um, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, we've, we've got successful projects that are 95% least of rental projects in just finished a great project in Philadelphia, over 400 units, and um, we're, we're over 90% leased. And with the 
the floating interest rates, it's, you know, we're, we're okay, but we're not doing great, you know? And then, then you start looking at the interest rates and how it affects refinancings. And it's, you know, it's devastating. It's making all of this very, uh, you know, questionable to, to take on new projects. So do you do you think that the bigger challenge are the rates or, you know, a lot of what I've read and what I've heard anecdotally or talking to other guests on this program is we can't develop in the absence of, of tax abatements. So without 421A or some comparable tax abatement, it just doesn't make sense. We're not going to break ground. There'll be new projects for the next four or five years because those are projects that are already benefited from the pre-existing abatements. But after that, you know, unless something else happens five years from now, we're not going to see any more residential development. Do you agree with that proposition, uh, assuming that rates come back down at some point, or um, does something need to be done on the tax side as well? I think that I think they're both necessary. I think that the tax side, you know, 421A was a vehicle that worked. And I, I mean, it, you know, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's right. like that was, it worked. It, it was a, it was a catalyst. I mean, that together with appropriate interest rates or proper financing would stimulate things. But I think we really have to get, there's really got to be a focus on getting interest rates into a reasonable realm. I'm not saying they're going to ever go back to where they were, but you just have to tighten things up and also exhibit that it's going in that direction because everybody's looking at it and they're looking at SOFR and they keep saying it's going higher and higher and higher. And, you know, we're, you know, I, I was around when interest rates were 18%, you know, and you still got things done, but you got them done because the land cost was reasonable. And also the, the cost of everything was much more reasonable. Um, you know, you, Someone getting an 18%, I have this fight and it hasn't been straightened. We have, I haven't gotten anyone to get this straight anymore. So, but, you know, the point was when they were paying 14% on a mortgage or something, the house was $59,000. Now you're paying eight and a half or 9%, but the house is three and a half million dollars. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's, it's a different time. and and. I don't know if the solutions are as, as simple. Um, it's they're all it's you know it's an octopus and you got to get all of them at once. You got to kind of like tie all the arms up. So um, do I believe you know? Listen, we're we we still continue to look at everything and try to make sense out of things. Um, you know, we even looked at a, a, a dormitory project uh, this week that we're we're thinking about the southwest, the southeast. And even that didn't make sense um, with the interest rates where they are. And that's unusual. I mean, you know, that was, those were like give me's, you know, because the costs were less. Now the costs are the same. And this was, but there are things all, all over. It's, it's a tough, uh, it's a reach right now. Is this, is this the toughest market you've ever, you've ever operated in? I am the eternal optimist. <laughs> so my that's why you have to visit, visit us. You know, it's 
I don't believe anything is ever dead, okay? And I don't believe anything's ever bad. I think, you know, I confront everything where we got to find a solution and we got to work it out. And, you know, I truly, do I think this is the worst market? I don't know. I seem to recall days that were worse. But I, I just, I remember them vividly. Um, but I can't remember which cycle it was. But there were days that were worse. Okay. Um, you know, we've, we've been through it. We've been through crazy things. I mean, you know, um, listen, I got, I, I mean, at one point, I was receiving an award from the, the Landmarks Commission or something. And at the same time, I was dealing with Lehman and AIG. And they were all at this luncheon where I was getting the award. And that was the same day that Lehman declared its bankruptcy. So, and then AIG followed not long after that, you know. So, were there worse days? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, I think that's our. I think that's our quote. That's the pull quote from the from the episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there are real worse days. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Go ahead. You know. Uh, the eternal optimist that you are, even though you're friends with a lot of lawyers, I, I would think that would sour your mood. Um, <laughs> the take out the crystal ball for a second. We're having, an, we're, we invite you back five years from now for another podcast episode, and we're talking about the the future of residential ve- development in the city. What's going on? Where are we? Are are people building? Um, you know, what is the what, what does the landscape look like five years from now? What do you think? Well, you, you know, I'm still I'm still an advocate for conversions, and and will be. But you know, uh, unfortunately, people paid a lot of money for office buildings, and it's going to take time to you know to get those into a realm that you know uh, is a basis that you can convert. Because most of these buildings now are not only interior modifications, but they're going to require the exteriors to be modified as well with operable windows. So there's a lot of money there, and that's that's one avenue that could be progress if if you you looked at where it was going. In terms of of um, new construction, you know. Um, I find it interesting that different markets have different bases to work with. And I was just having this debate the other day, because here, when we, when we look at a piece of property here and we're going to demolish a building or get a lot or do something, you know, you, you pay based upon the FAR or what you can build. And, you know, you go into different markets like Miami, you you pay based upon the land area only. You might pay a premium otherwise, but you don't necessarily get credit for all of that. You know, and New York has become, because of that, you know, the fact that you're paying for what's not there. You know, you're paying for the the, the FAR and the air rights and whatever it is. The land is just too expensive. And um, 
I don't know how you do, you know, how you get to a rental, how you're able to do a rental program without a subsidy and without 421A in the future. And I think that's what that comes down to, really. I think all rental is going to need it. So even if you go to, you know, a requirement of 30% affordable in it, you know, you have to get the subsidy to compensate for that. So I have one one final question for you. You've been extremely respectful, uh, giving us this much time, and I appreciate it. But you you've mentioned the Quay Tower a few times uh, in, during this conversation, and wondering yeah, if you sure. can just if you can just share a bit more about um, what that project was and and the success of it. And I'm going so to I'm going to piggyback on Cooper's question. Were you developing Quay and the landing simultaneously with with one Brooklyn Bridge? Was this all happening at the same time? No, no. Quay okay. and the landing is. Uh, 18 years after. Uh, Quay and the landing in the last two buildings in Brooklyn Bridge Park, the last two development sites. So they were put out as an RFP. It was supposed to be the community <laughs> objected to them because the park, because the success of the park and the other buildings and all, they felt the park didn't need the money anymore. Um, but that was we we went through that litigation and everything after having been you know uh, uh um uh, selected um so our proposal in in that to to make it compelling was creating that affordable structure that i mentioned earlier which really works i mean it, it worked i mean listen if if there were other people that were willing to do that and you had larger development projects, um, very much like some of the things that were done in Long Island City, yes, they provided 25% affordable or whatever, but you know, they still were huge projects that, you know, maybe could have done more. Um, so, so the landing is a, was a developed purely as a rental to be the affordable component and allow what we said was there was there was this whole thing about only the rich people living on the park. So we we changed that and allowed an affordable rental component in the park, on the park. Quay Tower was developed as probably one of the the I mean it, it's clearly one of the the best residential uh, condominium projects that we've ever done. There was no compromise in design, no compromise in anything. Um, the, the 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 everything about it is is truly spectacular. I mean, you you guys are welcome to go anytime. I mean, it's we're about eighty percent sold at this point. It was you know we were selling in the in the slow period. Uh, sales were slower than we had anticipated, but we did you know get our numbers. We you know we did every. It's just an exceptional building. If you think the views are great in one Brooklyn, you go into Quay and the the units are all. It's amazing. It's like being on the in the water. It's it's unbelievable. Um, so, um, but that again was you know we we you know we've you know not everything is just you know hitting the home run out of the park. You got to play the game and. And we're we're in it for the long run. We're we're there, as I said earlier. We manage the properties as well, so we're we live with the the buyers and the tenants. And you know, I live in one of my buildings. Uh, 
one of my one of my sons lived in one Brooklyn when he first was uh, before he moved to the suburbs because his, his kids had to go to school. Did he um, move to Did he move to Roslyn? He moved to Roslyn as well no, as my daughter <laughs> too, my son-in-law. And they and they every day they hate it. <laughs> every day, not yeah. they don't hate when they're home, but the commute is 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 terrible. Um, but the school's great, so whatever. Um, they're counting the days till their kids go to college, <laughs> and it's going to be a while. Anyway, um, speaking speaking know. of things that have gotten too expensive, we can have another podcast about that. But um, yeah, well. You know, you, you got to pay for it some way. But it's, uh, no, and listen, I, I don't know. Everything's relative. I got to tell you, I can't, you know, it's unbelievable, truthfully. And, you know, I, I was, I was my early part of my career, I was very involved in the supermarket industry. So when you talk about prices, it's just another whole thing of uh, every bit of it. And I'm involved in other businesses where, I can't believe how they have uh, how the pricing has changed and the costs of doing it. So that's it. Well, this is a, this is a wonderful conversation. I, th I feel like we could have talked for a lot longer and we'll have you back on. Maybe we'll come to your office to the next one. Yeah, so it'd be my pleasure. And there are other people here that you'd probably enjoy talking to. They've been, you could come up with all kinds of questions here. <laughs> if if um, any of our listeners out there want to hear more about you, see what projects you're working on, where can they go to take a look? Well, there's the um, first of all, we're we're our RAL Companies uh, has a website, so it's RALCompanies.com, I believe. Um, it is. You know, it is. I'm on it right now, so I can okay. confirm. So you could see there's a real variety of different things that we've done, and there's a lot more. Um, but, you know, we're, we're kind of like, you know, I like to, we've done every building type probably, and uh, we're, um, we do a lot of third-party work as well, which is a big thing for us. In, in 2008, 9, 10, when the world was coming to an end, um, all our projects we you know were completing and as i said they might not have given us the returns we anticipated but they were all done and they were all fine and all of the financial institutions that we worked with and they were numerous uh turned to us and we started doing the uh taking over projects and completing them and we took over about 36 to 38 projects throughout the country my objective was to keep our whole organization together, which we did, because um, we have a we have a deep bench of people, and uh, so uh, we continue to do that. We do a lot of uh, other projects, and you know, bring them over the finish line for people, and, and do that. So that's something that we're always uh, open to, um, and we're we're all over them. We've got office, you know. We've got an office in Denver. We've got an office in Houston. Um, we've got an office in uh, the Caribbean, doing you know big hotel. I think we'll visit that one. We'll visit, meet Cooper and I will visit the Caribbean office. Let's do yeah, that. We'll set up our next yeah. meeting there instead of instead of the New York one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds Caribbean better. Or, it Caribbean is. or Union Square. We'll go with we'll go with Caribbean. 
I think Union, you might prefer Union Square. You could eat better. You could, it really, it's, you know, but anyway. Well, agree to disagree on that front. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Robert, well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate this it. This was a pleasure. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.